Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2021 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Nikki Hilton, Senior Archivist for the Mulberry Bush. Hi Nikki, would you like to introduce yourself and talk about what you do at the Mulberry Bush? Yeah, hi Faith. Um, thanks for talking to me today, inviting me along. Um, so uh, I've been an archivist for um, over 10 years now and I've worked in a variety of settings. So business and university archives, local government and national government, and also um, kind of special collections that focus on communities, which is which is roughly what the archive I currently work at focuses on. So the archive itself is part of the Mulberry Bush organization, but it has a um, older history as a separate entity. So it's called the Planned Environment Therapy Archives, and they were established in the 80s by a group called the Planned Environment Therapy Trust. So for 30 years, they were run by the trust and they collected records on therapeutic living and learning um, in a variety of environments. So uh, schools and hospitals, rehabilitation centres, residential centres for youth offenders, um, as well as um, kind of umbrella organisations who look after that sector and notable people and groups who have influenced therapeutic living and learning. And what therapeutic living and learning means I mean it, it has lots of different names historically you might call it planned environment therapy and today you'd more likely call it a therapeutic community or you might call it an, an, an enabling environment uh, which is another term we use and it's really about creating um, a community and a space where people can work through trauma or addiction or mental health issues um, as a group so rather than individual therapy which can often be a part of therapeutic living and learning uh, there's a real sense of the group and the importance of the group and the group dynamics. So that's what the archive focuses on on the moment. And um, in 2019, the Mulberry Bush took on the archive and we've been um, looking to grow the collections and increase the use. So where do you draw the material from? Is this in, an English based project or is it UK or, or how wide a scope is it? We're set up to collect from the whole of the UK. Um, and at the moment, our collections are more heavily focused on England with some Scottish collections. But that's an area of growth that we're really looking at the moment is connecting more with the, with the whole of the UK and to start looking at um, how we can link into similar projects internationally. Australia and Canada especially have uh, quite a large um, community of therapeutic communities. So that's, um, that's an area that we're developing into. So how do you spend an average day working on the archive? An average day? Um, crikey. Well, do you know what? I say every day at the moment for me is a journey of discovery, uh, no matter whether it's a desk-based task or in, in the archive stores. So I came to the role in August 2019, um, shortly after the Mulberry Bush took on the archive. And um, uh, one of the things about the collections is they're amazing, fantastic and really diverse but they're listed in quite a haphazard way. So some collections have a great list and it's really easy to find things. And some things aren't listed at all or, or only partially listed. So there's a lot of rifling through boxes and um, trying to work out what things are. And that means that every day I meet new characters, I encounter new stories, and that really sparks ideas for new ways to engage people with these collections and new ways to use them and uh, new areas that people might want to research in as well. So it's, it's quite a fun job at, um, because it's really, you feel like you're, you're delving into history every day. 
You've told us about um, the contents of your collection, but what format does it take? Do you have sort of medical papers? Do you have interviews? What kind of material are you dealing with? Yeah, it's, it's quite a range. So like most archives in the country, it's, it's heavily paper-based and it's administrative records of those schools and hospitals and um, centres that we hold the records for. And that does include some medical records, um, not so much modern, but if we're looking at post-war, we have some um, admissions registers and um, admissions books that tell you about the people who were joining therapeutic communities there and the type of conditions people were presenting. Um, and also along with that, the kind of minutes and the management papers of those organizations. But then because these are really community focused, we also have a lot of, kind of objects and artworks um, of community members. Art therapy is obviously a really important part of any, any group living. So we have a lot of um, those type of objects and um, artwork made by people going through their treatment at the time, which gives a really different insight that you can't get from the management minutes into what it's actually like to live in that community. Uh, but we also have around five terabytes of audiovisual material, including um, about 1,000 oral histories, um, which were collected over a 30 year period with people who were practitioners, um, pioneers in the field, as well as people living and working in communities. And that's a really um, invaluable and fascinating resource because as I said, it really, alongside the kind of administrative records, these records, these oral histories of people's lived experience really brings a new color and a new way of looking at those records and the way the communities ran. And then alongside the digital stuff, which we love, we also have a hell of a lot of obsolete media, um, especially reel to reels, um, which we think would be wonderful, but we don't always know what's on them. So we're on a bit of a mission at the moment to try and get different parts of the archive digitized so we can see what treasures are, are hidden in these old reel-to-reels. You've mentioned that most of your material is post-war. Do you have anything from earlier than that, sort of like the birth of um, psychotherapy, things like that? Do you have any older periods that you've managed to collect? We have a few things from the 1930s. Um, so the idea of therapeutic communities really started to gain traction in World War II especially around the idea of, of treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and there was a, a move towards this in the 30s, but it was really the Second World War that, that pushed that movement forward and sent money towards it. Um, obviously, people were ready to experiment. Um, you had young men and women who were presenting conditions you'd previously only seen in, in lunatic asylums. And when you have such a large um, proportion of the population who suffered trauma, there was a real kind of move towards looking at different ways of treating those conditions and helping people back to health. So it's it's really post-war, so it's quite a modern archive collection. That's really interesting you mentioned that period of time as being leaps and bounds forward for the understanding of mental health. I think we're in a period of that right now. I've been reading recently about kids who are having mental health issues that have just not been as widely reported as before. Are you dealing with adding to your collection from this COVID period as well? Yes, we're trying very hard. It's, it's, um, it's a tricky balance for an archivist because you want to collect contemporary collecting. You want to um, move forward with that. But at the same time, a lot of the organizations that we work with and we collect the archives from are going through a really difficult time at the moment. Because as you say, a lot of their clients are 
are facing really quite serious mental health issues, but also the staff, you know, we're all going through the pandemic together. And if you are in a very high pressured environment, um, looking after, say, young people who've suffered trauma, but you've also got this black cloud of COVID over the top of you, changing the way you'd normally work, um, changing maybe your staffing patterns and who's who's available to be there. So it's quite a, a difficult and sensitive time. So we're, at the moment, we're focused on collecting the kind of official records of how these organisations are responding to COVID. But as we move into 2021, we're doing quite a lot with um, umbrella organisations that work with all those communities to start to talk to people, to reflect on their experiences of, of being a member of staff at this time and how it's affected the way the communities run and how it's affected them personally. So it's collecting we're going to continue to do um, throughout 2021 and, and onwards because I think people's perspectives on the pandemic and, as you say, awareness and mental health issues will change quite considerably after this period. So it's it's a really exciting area to collect and also an area I think there's quite a sensitivity around whilst we're still in the pandemic. Who accesses your collection mainly? So there's several streams of people who access the, access the collection. So there are researchers who are doing current research into um, mental health and working with young people and people with mental health issues um, who are looking to do kind of longitudinal studies, so comparing practices over time. And because we have a large amount of case files for different organisations, you can get a really good idea about how practices have changed, things that have stayed the same. As I say, the different um, treatments people are going through, the different conditions they're presenting. And that's a really interesting way to kind of look back at history and practices now and do a really long term study. Um, and also there's the usual um, group of historians, um, medical historians, people studying criminology, psychoanalysis, social reform, are all, all very well represented in our collections. Um, and we have a number of former staff and um, residents contacting us because of those case files we hold. Um, people can access their records for a time they were in the communities. And also um, former staff who are interested to kind of take a trip down memory lane and, and see, you know, remember the place they worked. Because these are such tight-knit communities when they are, um, when they're active, it means that people often have really fond and interesting memories of working there. And we're seeing increasingly um, more and more current practitioners wanting to connect with that heritage and to understand kind of um, why their community operates the way it does or where these some of these theories and ideas come from. So we're seeing a growing number of people currently working in the field starting to access the archives. Oh, wonderful. That's great that there's such great engagement with current practitioners. Mm, yeah, it's it's quite a new area. And it's, I think it's really interesting to see. And I think especially as we, you know, as things get older, as, as we're looking back on the Second World War, and as you say, as we're dealing with um, trauma from the pandemic in the way that people had to deal with trauma from, from the Second World War, there's kind of a, a feeling of um, needing to understand the heritage as well. Are there any particular challenges you think that come with managing this archive in particular? I think one of the big challenges is balancing confidentiality with transparency. Um, we do have a lot of records that are closed to research because they are um, they do contain personal information about people um, and they will remain closed for, for quite a while yet. But there's also a need to be transparent in a way around the way 
communities operate and um, the good things and the bad things um, that happen within communities that are, are tight-knit in that way. Um, and I think that also there's just a huge amount of stuff you could collect. Um, I think that's always a challenge for a lot of archivists is, is you always feel like you could be collecting more and bigger and uh, need to kind of balance your priorities on that front. And, and also the archives themselves are in quite a rural location. We're based in the Cotswolds, which is a beautiful site and wonderful for research because you can come and it's really quiet and peaceful and you can have a lot of time kind of delving into those records. But it does also mean that we have to be mindful of people who can't travel to see us. And there's a real push to make sure we uh, digitize stuff, that we have a real um, online presence and that we can present the stories of these communities in a way that's accessible for more people than just those able to travel to see us. So you said that um, accessibility is important. You said earlier that um, you're interested in linking up with some international organizations and projects, but what are your hopes for the future of the archive? I'd like to see it continue to grow and develop. I think at the moment it's not used as much as it could be. Um, I mentioned earlier about this kind of areas of history, medical history, criminology, psychoanalysis, social reform, and I think that uh, we could see more use of the collections in those areas. And I'd also like to see more people who aren't within therapeutic communities use the archives because actually that there's so much content in there about the way society approaches trauma and uh, mental health issues, uh, the different methods and experimental methods and uh, people, you know, really trying to, outside of government, work together to find ways to help people. And I think that's incredibly interesting for our social history and um, our culture around mental health today. And I'd like to see it um, be used more by people who um, used to be residents of these communities because as I said there's, there's just such a wealth of information there for people to understand their own histories, um, understand the time they spent there as well. So I think uh, for me the future will see the archive become even bigger and better than it is. On that note, what is your favourite part of the archive? What is your, your most interesting item? I think it's such a difficult question because as I say at the moment every day for me I discover new things so I think every day I have a new favorite uh, a new thing that I found that I love um, and it's just so varied and interesting it makes it quite difficult to, to pinpoint but I think one of the first things I found that I really thought wow this is this is quite special and important is a prospectus from um, a, a kind of an experimental community called Q Camp and the, the Q camp had two forms. So his first one was in 1936. And it was set up to help young men who um, were showing social and behavioral problems. And it was based in Essex. And the idea was um, that these men would come together and work as a group and have a lot of responsibility themselves. And that would lead to self-discipline and self-growth. And that camp was quite short-lived, but it opened again in the same place in 1944, but this time focused on young children. So. This was a direct response to the evacuation program of the government because they were finding that there were a lot of children who were um, being sent to inner city areas who couldn't be placed with families because of the social and behavioral difficulties they had. Um, families were finding it too difficult to cope. They didn't understand the children. So the Q camp was set up in Essex, 1944, to um, provide a home for these children. 
And it was based on the same ideas that they had applied with the young men. It's the idea of self-responsibility leading to self-discipline. So actually the camp was self-governing, it was democratic, and both children and adults were responsible for running the camp. So the kids cleaned the rooms as well, they helped cook the tea, they put the laundry out. Um, it wasn't always smooth sailing. Sometimes there were fires, sometimes windows got smashed, but um, the children themselves would have to make the repairs with the help of adults. And there was a real sense of that social responsibility. And um, throughout 1945, uh, inspectors were constantly trying to close the camp down because they weren't sure about the methods. It was so radical and so new, this idea that the children were so involved in their own care and uh, in the, the, the running of the community they lived in. But it was actually a fire that eventually closed down the camp. Um, the, the fire kind of destroyed a lot of the camp and they didn't have enough money to keep going. But this, this prospectus is just so wonderful because before all that, it, it lays out what the community could be and, the, and really appeals to the child. It's not written for the parents, it's written for the child to tell them what they could expect of the camp, um, what they'll be asked to do when they're there, um, what it might lead to and how it might help them. And I think that's so interesting because it's one of those early examples of rather something being written to the parents and the adults talking about the children. It's directly appealing to the child to say, you know, this, this will be a good thing for you to come here. You know, you'll, you'll get some self-discipline, you'll be responsible for yourself. And actually that's a really interesting shift in the way we think about childhood as well. Mm. So that's, that's probably my favorite. At the moment ask me next week faith and it'll be a different one <laughs> right <that's that. laughs> but no you're right that sounds like a really positive step forward and i think that your archive must be full of stories like that people taking charge of of their health and it's it's not kind of all uh, locked in the asylum there's more positive stories throughout history mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah of people really trying to make a difference and, and working together and working really hard to to find a different way of doing things Mm, for sure. Thank you so much, Nikki, for taking time out of your day to talk to me about your collection. It's very interesting, quite a niche topic that I think a lot of people probably haven't thought about. Um, but it sounds like you have some gems available for research. Yes, yeah, it's wonderful. So is some of it available online for people to look at? Yes, yeah, so on our online catalogue, we have been busy throughout uh, the pandemic putting up a lot of the oral histories that I talked about. So um, every week we put up new ones that we've um, edited and made available and they're available there for free for anyone to listen to and download the transcripts. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nikki. Lovely. Thanks for talking to me. Cheers. <laughs>